Take the guesswork out of your cannabis shopping with the ECS DNA kit by Endocana Health. If you take pride in your canna nerdiness or are just canna curious, this kit empowers you to find more about the best cannabis choices. Right now, you can save 25% off your DNA test at endodna.com using promo code POD25. Your purchase includes the Endo DNA Collection Kit, Endo Decoded Report, personalized cannabinoid and terpene suggestions, and Endo Align products matching in your state. There will also be suggested dosage guidelines and optimum methods for inhalation or usage. Once you know your personal ECS data, you can shop Endo supplements tailored specifically for you. And right now, Endo DNA is celebrating their new patent with a buy one, get one offer on their Afika Soft Gel lineup. And since I know that many of you struggle with sleep, I want to highlight Afika Unwind, created to support health sleep cycles using patented proprietary formulations of hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and essential oils. If sleep is eluding you, sweet dreams are in your future. Buy one for yourself and get one for a friend at endodna.com. And don't forget promo code POD25 at the checkout for 25% off your DNA test kit. This is The Cannamom Show, a podcast chronicling the inspiring stories of real women in the emerging cannabis industry. Your host, Joyce Gerber, mom, lawyer, political activist, has been speaking with women from coast to coast who are leaders in the revolution of cannabis and caregiving. Now, in season two, The Cannamom Show continues on its mission to empower women-centric cannabis businesses by sharing their stories with you. Go make yourself a cup of tea or roll yourself a joint, sit back, and learn something new about this magical plant on The Cannamom Show with Joyce Gerber. From the Tip O'Neill Studios in North Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's The Cannamom Show. Now here's your host, Joyce Gerber. Welcome back. So I haven't kind of a funny day here at the Cannamom Show. <laughs> we are supposed to be joined by my friend Amy Ryman. We'll see. She may show up. She may not. But hey, how are you, Dave? I'm great. I'm great. Yeah. A, a strange, chaotic day at the Tip O'Neill Studios. Is that what's going on? You never know what's going to happen. And my, my, my cat is sound asleep next to me and sometimes he starts to snore. <laughs> so okay. I may have to like just interrupt it so you can hear it later. Yeah. Put your microphone right. up to the cat because I want to capture that sound as a good that producer. Because yes. I am a cat. He will say, I am a cat. <laughs> so let's see. Oh, I have a seed update. Oh, cool. Uh, you so tell. We made our, uh, I made my rundown to Weymouth with my uh, George Clooney lookalike husband. Mm -hmm. Yes. So no one took pictures though. It was surprising. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a mask. Maybe it's a mask. That'll do down. it, yes. <laughs> they weren't quite sure. Mm. So we went down. I want to give a shout out to my friend Sandy at Ivy Bliss in Weymouth. It is an amazing shop down there in Massachusetts. She has everything you need, including a cannabis church. So check her out. And so those the cannabis accessories and stuff, not the actual cannabis, right? No, actual cannabis, but she does have all some wonderful products. I've got my own mom that she creates herself. She's got some really good jewelry in there too and um the cannabis church and she's full of information this woman knows everything about the cannabis world cbd world and she really has a church so you, no joke so like <laughs> is the church is like if you walk into the back there's like a church or a chapel church, or a chapel with a dj station and a <laughs> that's very podcast room and a cbd dispensary 
Wow. Machine. It's everything you ever imagined a church should have. Interesting. <laughs> and is it non-denominational or is it the Church of Cannabis or what is it? I believe it's a Church of Cannabis, but okay. I'm sorry. I don't mean to make fun. I'm not really making fun, but yeah. I, I, do, I don't quite know the name, but there is a church there. It's a beautiful building. Sandy, I, I met her at, when I started going to cannabis events in Boston, CBD events, mm-hmm. and she always had the most beautiful booze at every event. She just has a magnificent eye. She's very visual, and uh, her products are wonderful, and I just can't say enough because it's a local girl, so check her out. Excellent. And check the all show right, notes. So, all the information's check, in the show notes. All the, <laughs> um, so she did help me get my seeds because she's my cannabis connection. So I got 12 seeds. Mm-hmm. We, the Cannabom Show will be growing moon pie. Mm-hmm. Anyone's curious? I believe, according to my friend Joanna last week, I will be looking in the Farmer's Almanac and starting it around the time I should be starting my tomato plants if I did that. So sometime in April. So that's really all I have for updating now. So the people, farmer's, far, get- farmer's Almanac strangely silent on when you're supposed to start growing cannabis. I know. Weird. Yeah. I think maybe we should Come start on. a cannabis growing almanac so everyone <laughs> around the country will know. Cause now, I don't know this. If you don't mind me asking, when you've got 12 seeds. Is that foolproof, like it will produce 12 cannabis plants, or is there some, some uh, fall-off or something? So apparently I can get feminized seeds or clones. So if you were paying attention when Joanna was talking, you can get seeds <laughs> or clones, and she right. really recommended seeds over clones. Mm-hmm. So – the issue with seeds is seeds can be feminized because this is a feminine plant. And if they are not feminized, there could be some boys in here and mm. the boys aren't good. So you have to take them out. But I'm not quite sure how you tell which ones are and which ones aren't. So that's going to be an experience for me. <laughs> Has something to do with the bottom and balls. Always balls and boys. I don't know. And mm. you have to somehow you can actually send it to a lab or some people can just they know because they see it. So I'll let you know when it starts. Got it. Keep us updated. And I'm, and I'm not going to grow all 12. That would be way too many. But maybe start with three. We'll see how it goes. And I can keep them in a cool, dark place, according to Joanna Silver, and try again next year if this fails. And how long does it take before they are ripe <laughs> or for the picking? I don't know what the word is. Ready for harvest? I don't know. We're like, right. I'm such like an urban Jew. I don't know. How does food come into being? <laughs> right, right. I think it is eight to nine weeks before oh, it's not, it will start it's not so budding. Long. Yeah. Okay. That's so good. Oh, and talking about urban Jews, although it'll be past Purim. Mm-hmm. So tomorrow, which is the day after today, the show is being recorded, but probably a week after you hear this yeah. is Porum and I am going to be host I'm going to be sponsoring an event called Porum <laughs> Sesh and Schmooze with our friend Adriana Kurtzer and who runs the Instagram site Jew Who Tokes. So cool. <laughs> now the yeah, the cannabis crowd has taken over the word sesh, right? That mm-hmm. the, I'm supposed to know that. The kids when they talk about a sesh it's usually a, a cannabis sesh, right? Cannabis sesh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so is that, but is this is just a kibitz? It's actually a show. So it's, okay, you buy it's a, a ticket. There's an entertainment, a comedian, uh, a princess, actually a princess comedian who will be doing some sort of Jewish comedian thing. I did send in a two minute video of me oh, nice. uh, dressed up in my living room that my George Clooney husband lookalike took of me on Saturday night. And I did take a bong hit because I never consume ever <laughs> on air. So this is all new people. If you wow. want to see the Cannabom show, take a bong hit. And I didn't choke. Check <laughs> it out. <laughs> and what was the costume? Or was it just traditional? You were Esther or for perm or what? Um, I thought I would really dress up. But so last year, I, you know, I I talk about my temple all the time. So last year, I was supposed to have a gala at our temple and I was going to dress up in this amazing costume I found at a, a pre-owned store in Cambridge. And it looks something like Cher would wear. It's all glittery, like big, huge bell bottoms and the biggest lapels you've ever seen. And I was 
bought it was a vintage piece it fit me perfect last year it was great and then obviously the event was canceled mm. and i really have had no other reason to wear it because i dress like this every day right <laughs> just <laughs> i'm wearing i'm wearing an ayana presley shirt today because i love her so i had no reason but i thought i could dress up in that on Saturday night. So I did that. I did my hair, my makeup. I even put on shoes. I took off my Birkenstocks. <laughs> that was probably unnecessary, but great. No, no, it was. I wasn't going to do it. And my husband kept taking like a full body view of me. Oh, well, that's rare. Okay. There you go. And I was, I was horrified at how I looked. So I went upstairs <laughs> and I got shoes. <laughs> you had to remember where they were probably, right? Yeah. Take them out. I'm like, am I, I don't, I haven't had a pedicure in a year. I was like, <laughs> what do I do? Me I don't neither. even understand. Um, <laughs> it's supposed to work. Can I give you a quick Purim note? You know how there are so many Christmas movies and the occasional Hanukkah movie or TV show. There is one sh movie about Purim that actually handles it in a very funny way. Do you know what it is? No, I do not. So it's called For Your Consideration. And you might be familiar with some of the movies of Christopher Guest, who's got this sort of ensemble comedy troupe they did the movies best in show which was about the dog show oh, i love that right okay so <laughs> so this one's called for your consideration and just as the best in show lampooned the world of dog training and dog shows this lampoons sort of the the indie film world and so th there's this gang that's creating this independent film and the film is called home for purim and it's about young woman who's coming home for purim to this very traditional Jewish family, but she's coming home with her girlfriend and they don't know she's a lesbian yet. And so, but the, so it's a movie within a movie, but it's played for laughs about, and then eventually network executives try to convince them to change the name of the movie. Cause it's just a bit as Ricky Gervais plays the part of the producer says, it's, oh my just, God. it's just a bit too <laughs> Jewish. It's just too, it's like the Jews right in the face. And so, but there's a lot of funny Purim stuff in there about oh, you know, I, Esther at, and okay. Heyman so for your consideration. There you go. So my temple loves Purim. My rabbi loves this. Like this is his favorite holiday. He dresses up. He does a whole show every year. So my Purim, Sesh, and Shmooze. That is really hard to say. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, yeah. you know. Five times fast. Um, Purim, Sesh, and Shmooze starts at 6.30 on Thursday night. And my rabbi is doing our temple event at 7.30, which I kind of want to go to. So mm -hmm. I'm going to see if I can do two. But I'm probably going to be a little like loopy by then if I'm seshing before. So maybe <laughs> I'll watch the movie yes. after. <laughs> you will have a few laughs. Guaranteed. I don't need to drink. Maybe that should be the change because poor, you're supposed to drink. So maybe we'll, we'll change it up, mm -hmm. change it up in our new JCC, my Jewish cannabis connection. Right. Right. Oh, I actually had a, another Jew story. Okay. You know, let's, this, is, this will be the new theme of the Candle Mom show. Sure. That's a, that's a niche audience, right? Yes, Jewish, absolutely. You invented it. We invented it. You invented it. Yeah. Consumer. Yeah. So I read a story yesterday. I like to read the obituaries. You know, I actually read the New York times from cover to cover, like an old person. Wow. Old school. I yes. I know. Old school. Like yeah. I have a delivery person and I tip him so great because he gets out here every day. Rain, show, no, mm -hmm. whatever. It's there. I wake up. There's my newspaper. It's like. I think God, it's I think it's so great. I And I'm a newspaper guy. I haven't read one in too long. So, right. So you're reading the obits. So I read the obits because that's what I do at the end of the day. And just to see interesting people. So this is a story I saw in the paper. It was yesterday. It was the death of Shlomo Hillel. He was 97. So first, Shlomo. Why are you shaking your head at Shlomo? I just like that name. It's I, a great I just, name. I think I'm after to name my pet. I just, I love, when's the last time you met a Shlomo? Well, I think my dad's technically a Shlomo. Is Solomon Shlomo? Oh, really? I, I don't know. The, the, in Yiddish, it, they, his mother would call him Shlemi, but I, I think Shlomo might be Hebrew for Solomon, but I'll look that up. But anyway. That 
is awesome. I don't yeah. know any Shlomos. All yeah. right, so Shlomo was Hillel, 97, and he worked in secret to help 120,000 Jews. Yes, that's correct. 120,000 Jews flee Iraq. Iraq used to have a very big Jewish population. We know the Middle East has had a big exodus in different ways, and things have changed a lot. So 120,000 Jews, I think, after the war. And he helped all those people. It was just fascinating. He's just one person. And think of all those families he touched. It's amazing. And the whole story, he went undercover. It's you know, it, it's going to be a movie soon. It sounds like it. I was just looking up there. There is some information about him on the Internet. But, yeah, we don't tend to think of what happened, what yeah. was going on in the Middle East in world post-World War II. Yeah. And, yeah, we don't tend to think of Iraqi Jews, you know. But there, inevitably, of course, there were at that period of time. They're cool. everywhere. Even my, my dad used to belong to a Jewish book club when mm-hmm. I was a kid, and he would get books delivered and, you know, be random titles. And so I'd be like, there were Jews in China? He's like, Joyce, there are Jews everywhere. We went. That's diaspora. We left. <laughs> yeah. Well, remember, we always used to hear about Soviet Jew- Jewry, you know, growing up and going to Hebrew school and all the the Jews behind the Iron Curtain in Russia who were being oppressed. And it was funny because my dad had these homemade Haggadahs, right, for Passover. Oh, wow. yeah. And and he would put in some certain current events. And for years, there was a passage, like, we went around, we took turns reading and we read about Soviet Jewry, and then he forgot to update it. And so after the, the Iron Curtain fell, we were still reading about Soviet Jewry until somebody said, hey, Dad, I think they're more or less they're liberated here. now. <laughs> yeah, they're here. They can go where they want. Yeah. They're all in Brookline. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. And they like it here. They love but it But it does okay. sound like Shlomo needs his own documentary. That's, I, I gobble up those documentaries about World War II, and there's a great one, which I'll – I'll try to look it up before the show is over, but about the one of the original prosecutors of the Nuremberg trials is a lawyer who's still alive. And he he was a New York Jew, young lawyer, and they brought him over there and he did one of the opening statements for the Nuremberg trials. And then he later helped found the the International Courts of Human Rights Abuse or whatever that's called. And so Slomo is one of this guy's contemporaries, I would think, yeah. I imagine that's a yeah. I keep thinking that Trump needs to have Nuremberg trials. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, in a matter of speaking, he kind of did just win his Nuremberg trial. You know, I know it's so depressing. Yes. Whatever. I don't yeah. know. We have to move forward. I, I just we have to come back to the center. We just have to. I used to be mad that we were so center, but my friend Dory Weil, my half baked housewife out in Texas, mm-hmm. I've been talking to her every day because oh my gosh, poor Texas. So uh, yeah. she has electricity back on, but she doesn't have all her water. So, you know, she's a pretty nice neighborhood in San Antonio. So she's doing okay. But she is a Republican. So we have these conversations because our, our con- you know, cannabis is where we connect. Right. So I do think I find this is a, I don't know, this is a zone in the world. This is a business zone, a health zone. It's like, it's a place where we can come back because we can't be on the extremes. and. But is your, fr- is, my, your friend, as, is your friend is your friend? I'm sorry if I miss this. Is your friend a Trump person or just a? She, no, she's not. She's not. She is a Republican, and her husband might have voted for Trump. I mean, we've had conversations over. The, I've just met her. I met her last year, oh, okay. so I've never actually met her in person. But you know, we talk because mm-hmm. that's what ladies do. And you know, we've talked politics over the year, and she knows how I'm very involved in politics. I'm wearing my Ayanna Presley quote here. Policy <laughs> is my love language, Ayanna Presley. I would have not known that was her. Yes, okay. So, and I was not. I will say, I live in her district. I was not an Ayanna fan when she was running. I was a Mike Capuana fan because I'm more of a middle of the road kind of mm-hmm. person. I'm proud of her now, yep. but I see how she 
she inflames people in a weird way and she's not really like that when you meet her Mm -hmm. but uh, and then there are people on the other side that inflame me so i don't know i I think there's got to be something we we gotta we gotta be better it's a tricky it's a tricky thing though to to the the one step closer to the middle thing because the i hear both (laughs) the just just as to the argument of whether people who are call a spade a spade relatively liberal-minded like you and i should take a step toward but a step towards the middle is one thing but a step towards the trump people is something that that some of oh uh, that I agree with oh yeah the Trump people are not the middle the Trump people are the extremes and the Republican right. Party has gone to the extreme the parties are supposed to be in the middle as boring as that is even though right. like if you work in politics you know it's only the crazies who stay connected all the time like yeah I'm in the Republican part of I mean I'm in, the, I'm in the Democrat part of that but you know the people who are willing to put up that kind of time and energy they have a certain view of the world you know well the same guy that haunts your halls Tip O'Neill was famous for having friendships with you know, Republicans, including Ronald Reagan, you know, they would battle it out during the day and have a drink at night. Sometimes tip had one too many, but by the way, just to our listeners, if you're interested in that doc, that documentary I mentioned, it's, and uh, for you two choice, it's called prosecuting evil, the, the extraordinary world of Ben Ferenc. So his name was, and still is Ben Ferenc, F E R E N C Z. In a couple of weeks, he will turn 101 years old and one of the original prosecutors at the Nuremberg trial and must remember, always remember, I was thinking about that when we were talking about um, just, you know, just what happens in our own country. uh, The whole thing with Trump is he kept going forward. He he would deny what was happening and just look forward and to heal yourself. You have to look back. You have to remember. That's what we understand. Mm -hmm. If you just forget and push down what happened, then you do forget. And then it can happen again. I mean, that was drilled into me since I was, since I could remember, I can't remember a time not even knowing that. Yeah, when the accusations or suggestions first came that the beginning of the Trump rise to power was not unlike Hitler's rise to power, my first reaction was to to, to be like, please, let's not overreact yet, because I hate when people go to the extreme right away. But the more I read about the way Hitler started, it kind of was along these lines. Now, I don't think Trump is this, this is going to sound odd and maybe terrible, but I don't think Trump is anywhere near as smart as Hitler was or manipulative as... He wasn't as organized. It, it, it wasn't, right. it, I mean, like the thing about killing all the Jews is they were very meticulous and we can't even find a thousand children. Right. We don't know what their parents went. So, you know, his ideas were horrible, but he didn't keep track of it. Yeah. And, I mean, at least Nazi Germany, they were very systematic and they did it in a way that allowed it I don't know. Maybe it felt more businesslike. I have no idea. I wasn't yeah. there. I would have, I would have been a victim, but I wasn't there. <laughs> no, that's what it's almost kind of like you, you, you and I you always have to be careful when I say this, but you sort of marvel at the way 9-11 was executed. It was almost executed to perfection, you know, and the, the U.S. has radar and fighter pilots and everything. They were still able to do that. And in the same way that, you know, evil genius in Nazi Germany, they were very organized. I mean, look at what they did. And uh, Trump, Trump would he would kill millions of people, but not in the name of a perfect race. He would kill millions of people if it meant he got higher ratings or, or had a higher proof, or people just liked him more for killing people. See, that's that's his it's thing. A, it's a cult. It is a cult. And I like I don't listen to many podcasts. I hate to admit this, but it's true. But one <laughs> that I do like <laughs> a lot is the Hidden Brain. And I spend my Sundays, oh, this will just be a show about me since no one else wants to join us. We've just been talking. Um, yes, you're so the guest. Yes. I spend my shows, I spend my Sundays, really. I listen to um, radio all day and they have service, church service music and church services in the morning. And then they have more of the podcasts and things in the afternoon. And of mm-hmm. course, my show tunes. 
But <laughs> it's sort of a day. Sundays, like Friday, I go to services, and Sunday's my day to sort of collect information to like fill myself. And the Hidden Brain has been such an informative podcast for me because it we just don't know ourselves. Like, and so I'm unfamiliar. We, does, it, is it, does it take a scientific bent as to what's going on in our brain? Or? Uh, it's a yeah, he's a, a scientific bent, but um, an intellectual mm-hmm. bent, like studying and why are people biased and what is a bias and what's a stereotype threat and how does that work in terms of your own biases against yourself? Like information that's you know, how can this phenomenon happen? Where, how, why are these people who are following Trump believe everything he says, despite the fact that contrary, there's just a reality that's out there that's different. Yet they can't process that. They, they've been something has happened to their reality that has excluded the rest of us, and but they're on the inside, so that's great. And I think that's the Trump phenomenon, is that, you know, I'm a Jew. I'm always on the outside. I'm always looking in. <laughs> like, yeah. I never fit in, but I think I can. Yeah. But when you really fit in, and you've always been an outsider, and the reason you fit in is because everybody else is terrible, mm. that's when you get smaller and smaller and smaller. And there's a group of those people who are so in their world, because maybe they've been, they feel so included. Yeah, right. And, and I, I, I not I, feel I, that way anymore. I think that's right. And some of the people I know that I learned were Trump people are people that I think just by their psyche, by their persona, that they do kind of feel like they got uh, a raw deal in life. And I, I think that, you know, this what Trump told Trump gave people the permission to their own set of facts. So it's very convenient to be able to when someone there's evidence against you or there's something that you don't like in the media to be able to say, well, it's simply not true because Donald Trump said there's fake news out there. That's what's dangerous. And, and, and Trump came along at a time that the timing was perfect for him with the explosion of Facebook and social media because there's plenty of phony information on there. And, he, and so it's like there's a phrase, Google, Google me right. Like if you want to if you want to find, you know, evidence that it was that, that Paul McCartney actually died in 1966 and was replaced by a mysterious guy. You can go on and you can find tons of articles that will tell you just that. Google me right. Tump it in and you find it, even though it's phony, right? To use one example. I, I, and I will. So I, you know, I'm the mom who did everything. So at some point I worked in the, the library at our school mm-hmm. and I remember working with the librarian during a period of time when she would do classes on this, like with the kids, like, how do you know what's right on the internet? How do you not know? What do you look for? You know, things that I wasn't taught, obviously. I remember learning how to double click on a computer. I was, you know, this is, and even like cannabis, we always talk about education, information and knowledge, you know, are present, but it's how you use that information and knowledge and what that information and knowledge is. So we have monetized media in a way that incentivizes bad information. And until we take that away, it's not going to change. Money is everything. I don't know why it just is. And if we don't regulate, people do not self-regulate. That is another thing I've learned on <laughs> mm-hmm. the hidden brain, you know, and that we can really believe anything. If you're, in a, if you're in the right situation, in the right circumstances, no matter how much education you have, no, if you went to Harvard, you went to Yale, if you never graduated from high school, you can be convinced of something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you think you're above it, if you think you can't be, you're probably in it right now. And this to, to maybe bring it back to cannabis, I mean, I, I think that y- you – and others in the cannabis industry have battled misinformation for a long time, right? And if you want to find data on the evils of cannabis and how, you know, you can find it and you can be, you can believe that. And, you know, you've told me about how there are, you know, certain industries that are still just ignoring the, the very fact that you talk about every week on your show. Is that right? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I will. So I'm on these club, you know, I'm obsessed with clubhouse because I don't like any other social media, but you know, I was on a one today, you know, just these nurses, mm-hmm. nurses are talking about, you know, they can't recommend it. How you still get in trouble for talking about it, you know, and then patients are talking about how it's almost like malfeasance for doctors not to even consider it as an option, but the doctors don't know what's going on and they aren't told. And it's just, it's unfortunate because it's not helping us. We can see our healthcare system is broken. I mean, I don't even know what, but the idea that maybe we can start care of our own health at some level and that healthcare is only for emergencies and for things that are, cannot be solved with our own ability to heal ourselves. And then maybe our healthcare system would function better. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't be popping pills for everything anymore. We have to, I don't, I wasn't like this, but we have to start taking ownership of our bodies in a way, but our systems have to support it. So if everything in our, if everything in the federal system supports the way it works now, it's going to stay that way, right? Yeah. But if we start supporting, I don't know, cannabis is so difficult because it should be agribusiness. Mm-hmm. It does need subsidies, but there are these huge companies coming in like PepsiCo and whatever who come in, who want to come in from the top down. And then, you know, all my lady friends who are at the very bottom of this, but who know how important it is to get it to the people and how important it is to have relationships with the people you're using this plant for, because it's not like popping a pill. It does need human interaction and some processing. Mm. I don't know. This is like a whole cultural shift, like, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's our history has been one of cultural shifts just like this. And just, I think you correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it's only now that the information about something like cannabis is available in, you know, in volumes as compared to where it was before. It was clearly very misunderstood. There's a writer named Chuck Klosterman who, who wrote a book about, I forget what the title of the book was, but it was, suffice it to say, the theme of the book was the history of world, the history of the world is the history of being wrong. So, 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 you know, we, we, you know, that's me, right? Everything I knew is after the, after Trump's election, I'm like, oh my God, everything I know is wrong. No, cannabis, (laughs) everything I do. Well, right. But what what I'm, you know, and cannabis will be on point for this, but you know, we used to think the, the world was flat and it's amazing that some people still do, but you know, we used to think, you know, in neighboring Salem here, we used to think that people were witches. And so we burned them at the stake and we look back on that and we say how foolish that was. You know, we used to know so much less about nutrition. If you go back and look at even like a baseball game or even any like TV program from the seventies, people had no muscle definition. (laughs) People were all, I mean, with certain exceptions, but people were just kind of smaller and slighter. And just with some basic nutrition, things we know now, people kind of look better for the most part. And cannabis is right in that category. You know, we, you know, I, I met now, do you think that the research was never there before on cannabis simply because of the stigma against it, that it was just viewed as this, the evil herb? Yeah. So I've had this curious curiosity about this because basically cannabis was fine until the turn of the century when a bunch of white guys wanted oil and paper and it didn't like Mexicans, apparently that's Mm. sort of how this went down. And somehow America convinced the entire world that this plant that had been around for 10,000 years as part of our history, just this part of it, like you can just look back and see bottles of cannabis, you know, herbal remedies. Like it's just, it was just part of the history. Mm-hmm. Somehow these guys convinced the whole world that it was so dangerous that it could not be consumed at any level. And if you consumed it, you had to go to jail. Well, at that's some point, big, yeah, that's a big shift. That's a big shift. And I always curious, how did that happen? And it must've just been federal money. I don't know how they convinced the rest of the world. <laughs> well, when I'll posit a theory, you know, somehow the masks, people became anti-mask during this pandemic. 
and all of a sudden it was political. And all of a sudden Trump was walking around, you know, being very casual with his mask. And it, and so, you know, the people who are real, you know, crazy right wingers, they think that the pandemic's a conspiracy. And so, you know, that's, absolutely absurd but now i lost my train of thought what were you talking about before this <laughs> i was talking about the history of cannabis and how white men made it illegal for oh right so now i remember <laughs> now i remember so so it became politicized and cannabis at some point i don't know if this is exactly what you're talking about it became tied in with it became a racist thing that the, oh, there's, there's, oh, yes. there, there's oh, no yes. you know if you watch the the documentary what is it called the the 13th about how once slavery was over the you know the white man, for lack of a better term, found other ways to put African-Americans down, including the mass imprisonment of them for rel- many of them relatively minor drug charges, many of those drugs, cannabis. So, Right. Um, and so, so, you know, so I did, I will say, my pre-law, I worked as a housing advocate for homeless families, and I did that for about three years, my poor family. But, you know, I drove all around these urban, really blighted urban areas in the early late 80s early 90s that was not the best time for boston sure and it, it just and i studied urban policy so i understood why these communities look like this you know when you have decades of disinvestment I, i'm not talking about i'm literally talking about like pulling money out of these communities like literally pulling it out and then blaming the people who are stuck there mm-hmm. for their problems you know that's what those are you know i don't not everyone listening is from this area but that's what the specific areas of boston look like that were you know redlined right and often those were people without power. So basically the Jewish immigrants had lived there, right? Yep. And then they said black people could live there. Right. You know, and this is a power money thing, usually white men in power. So that's where it starts. Yeah. My fee- my my hope, I guess, you know, I love politics. It's a way for women to get power if we can do it right. Mm-hmm. And there are just more women and more black women mm-hmm. who actually have an ability to set policy. Their voices, you know, our voices are important. They weren't always heard. And in order for them to be heard, we had to ask permission for a really long time, especially black women. And they are done asking permission. Mm -hmm. And they are making the rules now. And I understand it feels scary to have your world taken apart because, you know, you've always lived this way. But you have to recognize the people who are so afraid. We're trying to make it so that no one is afraid. People have been afraid for a long time in this country, but no one should be afraid. That's what I think was so great about being a Jew in America. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it's, yeah, you and I, our generation grew up, you know, really sort of immune to the, these evils that had happened in relatively recent history, you know, and yes. you know, when our parents were toddlers or young or whatever. And now Jews in America, yeah, just we haven't done too bad. We've done we've done pretty well. We, I mean, I don't know about you, but the instances in my life where I've encountered anti-Semitism were few and far between. And sometimes I didn't even know when it was happening. And so, anyway, but and that, and, and it's also I will say, you know, I, I've written about this. You know, my father and you know, your, they they had the privilege of white men. They were given the GI Bill. They were given an education. They mm-hmm. had access to all the resources the federal government used to say were worthy of Americans. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, when people say government can't do anything, government can do a lot. Government created these problems. You know, people didn't, black people didn't choose to live in bad neighborhoods. Poor people don't choose to right. live in crappy neighborhoods. Nobody wants to live in a crappy neighborhood, Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. But if, if, you know, Columbia Point, that's a great example in Boston. 
So Columbia Point was a horrible, scary neighborhood in Boston. Mm. For some reason, they decided, let's put all the poorest people in our Boston on a little island, sort of far away from everything. We'll just put them there. Yeah. That'll be great. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and as you can imagine, it didn't work out. Mm. When they came back and fixed it, and they said, this is a beautiful spot. It is really a beautiful spot where that Columbia Point is. Mm-hmm. I've been there several times. It's Harbor Point now. When they made that mixed income, when they put in resources, when they added public transportation and they kept low-income people there, in addition to medium-income people and some high-income people, they created a neighborhood. It's the most desirable place to live in Boston. It's mm. just beautiful. So I, this idea that, I don't know. Everybody needs access. We, we have to stop pulling resources out of some communities and just giving them to others. I don't know how we equalize it better in Massachusetts. It's about housing. It's about housing and where you live and housing and where you live impacts so many other things in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's change happens slowly. I mean, you mentioned the, you know, the Boston that exists now is not the Boston we grew up. I mean, I remember being scared to walk around really more than one part of, of Boston. Oh yeah. You know? And the, con- the combat zone was a real thing. Like you didn't, you didn't, <laughs> that was beautiful. Yeah. You, <laughs> right. And, yeah. Right. And um, I, you can change. I mean, think it's sure. great to change. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it can go up it can go down. And I think our voices, and again, it's about knowledge and information, the importance of giving. And I, again, as a Jew, I know people have different ideas of what we are, but really we are supposed to give. That's like sort of the essence. You keep recreating and recreating and giving. It's the most important part. Sadaka. And that, Sadaka, exactly. Nice. So, you know, and we are grateful to be in this country. Merrick Garland, his mm-hmm. speech, did you hear what he said when he was being, oh, so no. he talked about his own Jewish experience of coming to this country and how they were welcomed. I didn't know he, Merrick Garland was Jewish. Wow, Me neither. Right. Wow. Uh, and he d- dedicated his life to service. Oh, we could have had a... Is such a tradition. You know, look it up. And he gave a great <laughs> little, you know, he was talking about he's giving back. So I love America. I have traveled all over the world. We have more in common with each other than anyone else in this world. There really aren't that many of us. I mean, there really aren't that many Jews in the world, but even Americans, we just really aren't that big a percentage of the world and we can get along. I know we can do this. (laughs) Wow. If we had had Merrick Garland on before RBG passed away, we almost could have had a Jewish majority on the U.S. Supreme Court. (laughs) Again, that's action. Like, you know, there really aren't that many Jews in the world, but it is in our heritage to once you have knowledge, and knowledge is very important, I mean, the highest honor is to be able to study, but to use that knowledge and information to do action. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why people think there's so many more Jews than there are, because mm-hmm. there really aren't that many of us. Mm-hmm. But it has been, this country has really, it's, you know, our lives in other countries are not good. We were hidden in ghettos. We were told that we were, there were things wrong with us because of the way we believed, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't ask for this. It, just, it was given to me. And right. I was a reluctant Jew for most of my life. <laughs> but yeah. it's, who, it's who I am and it, it, it informs who I it's like the story thing like Judaism is my story that's how I understand the world it helps me make sense of stuff mm-hmm. yeah and I like it for that reason too and I wish I had asked my grandparents more questions because I, you know, I had sort of a classically incommunicative relationship with my grandparents this is my grandparents on my dad's side or the, the Jewish side and you know they didn't talk a lot about the old days and they grew up in a town called Grudna, which is now part of Belarus and used to be, you know, like 80, 90% Jewish and now is like 3% Jewish. But I started going back and creating a family tree on this Apple, I think it's just called Apple Family Tree or whatever, and went back and found 
you know, what, what hit me was there were certain levels of this family tree where like four fifths of this whole family was wiped out by the, the Holocaust. And it's only a few steps up on this tree that so so that's why I think I try to remind myself about by Jewish heritage, because I, like you, I think just grew up not really wanting to be observant. You know, I've never been a big services guy, but I like the community and, you know, it tells a story and like every, you know, every culture has a different story and this is ours. This is ours. All right. Look at Dave. We can fill an hour show. Oh yeah. I'm just getting warmed up. <laughs> Jews and cannabis. Right. You can do a clubhouse room. You can do a clubhouse room. Jews and cannabis. All right. Once you get on. Right. I will. Oh my god. All right. So I do think I should take a little break to talk about today's sponsor. Mm. Today, I want to give a shout out to Earth Sunflower, a woman-owned small business striving to reduce single plastic pollutions by providing eco-friendly, reusable options. I met Jill, the owner of Earth Sunflower because she is also a podcaster and we connected where else, but through clubhouse. What impressed me about Jill and her mission is that she works so hard to ensure that all the products are ethically and sustainably produced. She sourced all the products from India where she lived for half a year and Bali. And one of my very favorite products from earth sunflower are the reusable makeup rounds. They are handcrafted by a group of women in Bali that Jill partners with. The products are organic, reusable, and machine washable. You can use them to take off your makeup, apply toner, or to help exfoliate. And they are really pretty. So thank you, Jill. And check out Earth Sunflower. You can go look at Jill's site at www.earthsunflower.com and use the coupon code CANAMOM for 20% off your first purchase. Exciting. And you're a pro at the live reads already, Joyce. <laughs> Why, thank you. I've been listening to radio for years. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, so Dave, did you know that March is Women Month? Every month should be Women Month, but did you know that? <laughs> no, I have to say, I've never, there, there are a lot of months and there are a lot of days these days, hard to keep track. But I, I don't think I've ever heard that. Is it really, it's really Women's Month? Okay. I don't know. I sent a mask. You know, I make the uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg mask and I send to my guests and friends. Mm-hmm. Of course. And, a friend sent me a message back and said, it arrived just in time for Women's Month. And so March is Women's Month. Okay. Pretty soon <laughs> you guys are going to want your, you know, you're going to want everything. You know, you're going well, to want to be should. like, <laughs> I know. I was trying to be funny. Uh, and I also learned something new today. So September 20th is my anniversary. It is also Mushroom Day. <laughs> really? Now, what kind of mushrooms are you talking about? Any kind of mushroom? I think it could be the psilocybin, but. I was on one of those um, rooms the other day and they're talking about uh, moving towards, you know, legalization and they were talking about having an event on September 20th. Mm-hmm. So, so I you, didn't pick that on purpose when I got married a hundred years ago, no, 30 years ago. <laughs> well, it, it could be, so 920 could be the new 420, right? Yeah. I, and, there probably is something out there that I just don't, I'm not cool enough to know about, but. But so the, this, but there is a push you've talked about on the show before, I think in, in, Certain circles to, to legalize hallucinogenic mushrooms. Oh, yeah, it's coming. And actually, yeah. so my friend Dory and I had a conversation about this this morning. So I am very nervous about it. And when I talk to people about it, I'm like, how do you even explain it to somebody like me who's like literally scared of it? Like when yeah. I think of it, I think of something very weird. And he said, if you believe that this is the only reality and you're fine with that, it's probably not something you'd want to try. Mm. But if you think there's something on the other side, and I'm like, the other side of what? 
Right. <laughs> so yep. I don't know. I do a little cannabis. I think when I do my now I like Friday nights when I do services, I do smoke. It helps. Mm-hmm. And I do feel that like third eye. Like if I close my eyes and I'm singing, yep. I'm like, all right. So something on the other side, maybe there's something I need to think about. I don't know. What do you well, think? Well, no, I, no, I, it's a great question. And, and I, you know, am, am generally a science guy, I think. And sci- to me, like science usually wins. We met, I mentioned this earlier in the program. We used to burn witches, people we thought were witches at the stake. No, there, there is no scientific evidence of a witch. There's no, but there's also no way to explain how in theory, if I can, you know, throw a rock straight up into the sky, it will keep going forever. I, I can't get my brain around that. None of us can. I, maybe our brains aren't equipped to co- process the concept of infinity. So to me, they're, I'm willing to believe there is some other dimension or something. Now, whether or not that dimension comes to light based on you taking a hallucinogenic drug, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Although I do remember that, you know, certain of my friends who would, you know, I remember freshman year of college, I, I've never done any of that, the hallucinogens. I've done many other things. But people who kind of got into it, they, they and, and it's uh, on point to how you and I met Joyce, these summer camp friends, the, on the, in the summer they would come back and I would notice their personalities would be different. It's a long way of explaining that. But so, so some switch gets flipped when you take these drugs and they would say for the better. A lot of them kind of got calmer. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I hear. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I will say that's so the big discussion now is how is the psilocybin not going to get messed up like cannabis mm. for health and wellness? Because I will. So Rick Doblin is mm. like the godfather of this, this world of the psychedelic world. Mm. He is my cousin's father-in-law. Oh, hey, so that's my great connection. connection. But he got into this. He got into the advocacy and legalization 30 or so years ago because he wanted to use it for therapy. That's how it started. He had seen research, he had understood things that were going on, but he couldn't use it because he couldn't access it. So he started on this long journey to legalize it for medical use. And along the way, this has been very seriously confirmed that this is what this is doing. It's doing something to our brains. You know, we take all sorts of other weird medications for this, Mm -hmm. but this plant is able to help us access things to shift how we perceive reality, Mm -hmm. right? And, but it's not something you should be doing like, in your room alone, like watching videos. It should be something as a medical system with professionals who know how to help you, who can walk you through it and help you even with the microdosing. So this is a real medicine as opposed to cannabis. Cannabis has been sort of messed up in a way because it is a medicine. I believe it's health and wellness, but it came in so weirdly with the medical and now with the business that it's all, it's a mess. Mm -hmm. So there's a big conversation about how to make sure psilocybin is not a mess (laughs) when Mm -hmm. it comes in as a real medicine. How do we make sure it's um, pharmaceutical grade? How do we make sure that it's consistent? How do we make sure that it's something that is accessible by the medical community and the medical community knows how to access it and use it with their patients? This is a big conversation in their world that wasn't, it didn't happen in cannabis. Mm. Yeah. I don't mean to put you on the spot. It's your show, but would you be open to trying that? Oh, so I'm actually having my first guest in 2000, season three. Give it a plug. <laughs> my first guest in season three, uh, yep, is going to be Zoe Helene. Mm-hmm. She runs, it's Cosmic Sister. Mm-hmm. And her organization is actually funded by Rick Doblin's organization, MAPS. Mm-hmm. So she's only psychedelics. And she's going to be my first guest of season three because this is really an area that it keeps popping up in my world. And I am curious. So I'm not closing my mind off at anything. 
I mean, I'm not going to be popping it in my living room with George Clooney, but if I try it, maybe I do a microdose or I don't know. My, microdose sounds super safe to me too. And usually I have an open mind about these things, but I wouldn't want to have a, a bad experience because it seems like if you have a bad experience in one of those, it's, it's pretty bad. But the hallucinogens and the psycho, what are they called? Whatever. These, these kind of drugs are definitely taking a step into the mainstream because Gwyneth Paltrow, in a matter of speaking, is behind them. You know, she's got her whole goop line of product yeah, yeah, yeah. and she yeah. doesn't sell drugs as far as I know, but she did a series of these kind of documentary shows, documentary ish with all her goopy friends. And they did a whole bit on these peyote ranches or peyote retreats where in certain parts of the country it's legal. You can go and it's this very touchy feely, you know, retreatish thing and a lot of people wearing tie dyes and but then there are people <laughs> but, but then they have this whole system how they give you the peyote, you drink this tea and it, it tastes terrible for some reason. But then you have these experiences and these people it's I mean it, it Gwyneth didn't do it herself. I should point that out. She I don't think she was brave enough. But the, you know, I don't know if you've heard about this, but you know, you 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 throw up and you poop and you're being and just all kind of it's this whole your body gets turned upside down in addition to your mind getting complete and some people weep for hours and you know and then there's someone there to hug you and but the some people the believers say that you come out feeling like emotionally cleansed you feel you you have a new way of looking at life and everything so I I do that literally every Friday night I like I, I'm afraid to go back to services. This is the honest to God's truth. So I, I only way I know that the weekend ended is Friday. My husband, the other, I've been having sort of a bad, my mom has been sick. I've just been having sort of a bad couple of days. And my husband's like, you hold things in a lot. I'm like, I know, but Friday night, we let it all out. But <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to go back to services. Like I have started using our Friday night services online, you know, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. just feel all those emotions that I cannot feel during the week. And I sob and I like cry and I never know what's going to hit me. That's the funny part. Like sometimes it's during the yurt site. Sometimes it's when the rabbi opens his mouth. Sometimes it's when I light the candles. It just, it hits when That's it hits. That's interesting <laughs> and very, very healthy, I think. Oh yeah. And then I feel great. I literally yeah. feel great. And this is not my real, I never used to do like this, but mm-hmm. this has been fantastic. So I don't think I need peyote. I just need my <laughs> rabbi singing to me. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you know, on a Friday night. Well, on Friday nights, when you and I used to go to summer camp, you know, there was, you know, whether or not you were religious, the ceremony of the whole thing was fun. And you looked forward to it. You got dressed up in blue and white and you sing the songs. And you're right. There's something about the drumbeat of that every week, that there's something nice about that. And I don't have a book. Like, I don't have a book at home. So I realized I've memorized a lot of the songs and the readings, (laughs) which I used to be dependent on the book for. Yep. Um, So that's interesting. And and this will be a plug for camp before we end the show. Okay. So I mean, the camp was the thing that got me connected to Judaism because I grew up in a Milton mass, which was not very Jewish. I was like the only Jewish kid in my elementary school at some point, except for my brother. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to Sharon. That was like super Jew. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I remember just feeling a little uncomfortable. Like I didn't quite understand what was going on. That's ironic. Yeah. When I went to camp, I felt so comfortable. Those are my best friends ever. All my Jewish friends for, you know, we did all the crazy things you're supposed to do with your teenage friends. And And I, we did everything in our power to make sure our kids got that experience. It is a nice way to, to turn your kids on to a certain amount of Jewish culture, whether or not that's a priority for you, but a kind of a soft way. Because I was like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like you, religion was not a big part of my life. And you, you learn that some of this stuff can be fun and it's a shared experience, which is nice. A shared experience. I was in Hebrew school. Like my husband didn't get to go to Hebrew school. So he thinks he like missed out on something. I'm like, oh, what? it was terrible. 
Oh, good lord! <laughs> oh, yeah, man, my son did almost didn't go to camp. Like, I, I actually wrote a letter to myself because I was so sad that he wouldn't do that because I thought it was like such a travesty. And then he agreed to go to Camp Tell Noah, giving a hint. All right, for two weeks. They said nice. they would take it for just a two weeks, so I didn't have to commit. Mm-hmm. And uh, he went to Israel with them, and it gave him a sense of Judaism that he would never have gotten here in Cambridge through his Hebrew school because he hated Hebrew school and didn't return after the bar mitzvah. Yeah, Hebrew school is just a, <laughs> it's just a bad combination of things. Like, you, you, I, and I felt looking back on it, I feel so bad for those teachers who you know you would go to elementary school or junior whatever you went to. And then you're done at three thirty. Now you got to go sit for two more hours in in this basically room behind the temple, and learn about Jewish stuff. Oh, the poor teachers—they never had a chance. Never had a chance. It was like it was it just it never. It wasn't that fun. So no. Anyways, all right. Yep. So, but my children, I tortured them. They still torture theirs. That is how it works in the Jewish tradition. <laughs> yeah. It's a culture of. Oh suffering. my God! So thank you, Dave. This, this was, was fun. fun. Yes, yeah, very fun. All right. So I don't know what happened to Amy. Maybe she'll show up. <laughs> Maybe that was one thirty. Um, so it's this, uh, it's this constant teaser. It's like Jimmy Kimmel says every night. We didn't have time for Matt Damon. We didn't have time for Amy Ryman today. Have, <laughs> all right, that's going to be my new tagline. Right. All right, again, people, we didn't have time for Amy Ryman today. <laughs> so thank you, my can of road, David. Yeah, you really earned your stripes today. Thank you. Yes, yes I'll be yes. back. <laughs> You'll be back, uh, Catherine, Canon Mom, social media guru. Thanks for all your work, and I want to welcome to the Canon Mom Show. Hayden, she's going to be helping to support the show, connecting us to other podcasts, and maybe selling some more sponsorships. I want, yes, I know. I want to thank Josh Lampkin and Bella Jaffe for writing and performing the Cannamom theme music. But most especially, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cannamom show, where we are talking about caring for and giving voice to women in the emerging cannabis industry, one can of story at a time. Please follow us on social media, anywhere you subscribe to your favorite podcast. I'm your host, Joyce Gerber. This is the Kenamom Show, and we are a production of Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.